Today, we're going to be continuing on in our series in John. Uh, so if you're here last week, we were actually up in the upper room, which was kind of cool. And uh, the whole service was a, kind of a meditation on communion. And we read through John chapter 19, uh, kind of reflecting upon communion and took communion together. Uh, today, what I want to do is kind of go back into chapter 19. And there's a few lessons that we can learn from it. Um, and, and I don't want to just kind of move on into chapter 20 and, and going forward and going forward because uh, there's a few things to pull out. Uh, before we get into it, though, I, I want to pray again um, just as we head into the Word and uh, that He would guide us. So, Father, we come before You um, as we look into uh, the Word that You have given to us. Uh, we are grateful that it is alive and active that it works within our hearts, that it is the power to transform us. It's the ability to know you, uh, the ability to know how you made us to be through Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would guide my words, guide our hearts, um, and your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as we were singing that second to last song, uh, the Lamb of God verse, um, was just kind of reflecting on that and that, that nature of Jesus, um, I just wanted to reflect on that a few moments. You know, um, whether it's the Lamb of God or, or other attributes of Jesus, like what are some of the things that you think of when you think of, of Jesus Christ? What's that? Shepherd. Shepherd. Okay, yep, so caring, guiding the, the sheep and the flock. That's good. Father. Father, okay. Another good one. Friend, good. Emmanuel, God with us. Absolutely. Redeemer. Yep. Redeeming us from, from sin and death. Okay. How about what? The true vine. Yeah. The, the source of life and what we're anchored and, and connected to and all, all really good things. What about the, the lamb aspect if we focus on that? Sacrifice for us. Yeah. That's good. What? Unblemished sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and, and actually that will tie in a little bit with the message today, but that without sin, without spot or blemish, perfect sacrifice, that's good. What about stuff from Revelation? How is Jesus described in Revelation? King, but like, not just king, but like conquering king, right? Like, like the sky splitting and, and him like riding with a sword coming out of his mouth, and in the entire army of, of angels coming behind him, right? Jesus on the judgment throne, yeah? And, and I, so I think when we reflect upon Jesus, and, and especially when we come to this passage, we have to keep all these things in mind, right? Like Jesus as friend, absolutely. Jesus as perfect sacrifice, yes. His a friend, um, the, the bridegroom to the church, but, but also remember conquering king, also remember spoke all things into existence. R remember that everything is held together by his power and by his word, and, and that if he wanted all of existence to just melt, that could happen right now. Like, like this is, is Jesus in all of that, and, and I think we have to keep all these things in mind as we go through John chapter 18 and 19 a little bit, and, and we look at his intentional sacrifice heading towards the cross. Uh, and so we're going to start in John chapter 18. 
Uh, and so this was uh, after the, the supper ended in the upper room, the communion was started. Uh, after he said these things in verse 1, uh, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there, where there was a garden, and he, his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Um, we, we, when we looked at this maybe a month or so ago, we had some of the kids like come up here, if you remember that, and, and we, we pretended to be like a little mob doing the whole like, kill the beast kind of thing. Like, I think that vibe was going on as they were coming to like grab Jesus, right? And, and so then the, here was Jesus, and the, here's this whole thing happening, and they're coming and looking for him. And, and in verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? And then there's like this really cool thing where they're like, Well, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, Well, I'm him. And they all fall down on the ground. Like, I love that passage. Uh, anyways, here, here's this thing. And again, they're coming with torches, lanterns, weapons. Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, said, okay, who are you looking for? Now again, we're keeping in mind here this, this whole aspect of, of everything we just described Jesus to be, right? We have Jesus who could be the conquering king, and we have a bunch of humans made from dirt, mud, and water that he breathed into, that he knows how many hairs are on their heads. He knew them when they were formed in their mother's womb, and they're walking up to arrest him. And Jesus, as conquering king, could do what? Wipe him out. Right. In fact, when he says, I'm he, they fall down to the ground. Kind of in testimony to the power and presence of who he is. But, but in that moment, he could have just been like, no. Right? <laughs> like, or, or like, believe. And, and they could have all fallen down to the ground grounded worshiped in that moment like it could have happened so many different ways but but in that moment instead we see him making this intentional loving choice to be the sacrificial lamb that says i'm i'm him let these others go but but i'll go with you and so he's making that choice as as the king of kings the lord of lords the one who holds all things together intentionally is saying Okay, it's time. I'm going to go with you. Knowing everything that was about to happen. And so we're going to work through John 18 and 19 and look at some of those things that he went through that he knew was going to happen when he willingly went with them and then what that actually means for us today. So in John chapter 8, we're going to verses 19 through 23 now. It says, The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus replied, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. In other words, like the religious leaders at that time are saying, okay, um, what are you trying to stir up? Like, like what's your deal? What, what's the problem that you're trying to cause here? Like, what are you trying to do? And his reply in that moment is, you know. Like, I haven't done anything hidden. I've been out in public the whole time. Like, you know what I've been saying. And then he goes like, why do you question me? Question those who have heard me. Like, in other words, like, 
Ask witnesses. I've been doing this publicly. He replies with that very reasonable response, right? Where they're like, what have you been teaching? Why don't you ask people what I've been teaching? What's the response in this? Verse 21, why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus. Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I've spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong, but if rightly, why do you hit me? And, and when you start to keep in mind the whole picture of who Jesus is, verses like this start to take on a different thing. Like, there's thoughts that go into my head. This guy that slapped him, what's his response going to be when he meets Jesus on the judgment throne? Right? Like, like in that moment, and he's like, oh, why are you talking to the high priest this way? And, and at some day, he's going to be convicted absolutely that he spoke the God he struck the God that spoke all things into existence. That he slapped the Messiah that he had been waiting for like his entire life. And so in a moment there, I'm like, okay, like that guy, like hopefully he's come to a conviction and he receives the grace and mercy from Jesus Christ that, that Jesus goes on to offer. Again, remember when he's on the cross, what is one of the things that he says? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so that aspect of forgiveness and Jesus' hope for this man is, is a revelation uh, of the grace and mercy and forgiveness and the very thing that Jesus was there for. So that's, that's kind of one thing that pops into my mind. The, the second one is still like this idea of Jesus. And here's this guy that he knows is about to slap him. Right? Like, like I... You know, I have nieces and, and nephews or, or even my, my daughter at times and we're play wrestling and, and everything like that. And, and there's like this aspect of pride in me sometimes that like when I see my daughter, like she's going to like pull off a move on me. Like I'll, I'll sit there and just kind of wait to the last second and be like, no. Be like, ha. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Or, or she'll try and tackle me and, uh, you know, grab her. And this was when she was younger. She's 11, 12 now, so it's getting a little bit harder to do these things, but like, you know, she's three years old running up to try and tackle me and I just kind of like grab her and hold her upside down and like, do you give up now? Right? And, and again, it's Jesus here. What could he have done in that moment? And, and yet he willingly lets this happen. One of the most insulting things that could be done to you. Right? Like, I've never been in a fight but I think emotionally, I'd rather be punched than slapped. In a sense, right? Like if you're going to punch me, like you're, like you're trying to do something to me. If you're slapping me, like you're trying to insult me. There's like a difference, at least within my mind, between the two. And this is meant to be like this insult. And, and Jesus just receives this shameful strike upon him. Then, then after this happens, one of his disciples, um, and we're not going to read all the verses as we go through this, one of his disciples, and Christian preached on this three, four weeks ago, um, Peter is there and he's trying to get into the gate, and the, the girl at the gate's like, well, aren't you one of his disciples too? Like, we already lit in John. Like, we, we lit in John, and, and you're going to come and, and support Jesus too? And, and Peter's like, nope. 
I, I don't know him. I, I'm just here because there's something going on. And so he's denied three times. Continues on that they brought him to Pontius Pilate then after this gathering. We'll look at this in verse 28. It says they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Uh, they did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And so even within this, like, like first of all, they're, they're leading him as a criminal to the governor. They're doing it early in the morning, which means Jesus hasn't slept. Like, like they had the day, then they had the meal in the upper room, and then he went to the garden, and, and they stayed up praying, and he sweated blood, and then he was arrested. Then they dragged him to this religious court, and they asked him questions and slapped him, and now early in the morning, taking him to the governor's office. And so he hasn't slept. They're dragging him all over the place. They're bringing him as a criminal. And do you see what day it is? They're preparing for the Passover. This big celebration that they would do on a yearly basis to celebrate what? The freedom from Egypt. The, the, the night when an angel of death went through Egypt and unless the blood was on the doorpost, the firstborn of that house would die. And, and after that happening, God used that to, to free Israel from Egypt to bring them out of bondage and slavery. Like, like this is what they're about to celebrate. In fact, they're so worried about it that they actually don't go into the headquarters because that would make them unclean and they wouldn't be able to celebrate this thing. And what they're actually doing in that very moment is they have the very sacrificial lamb with them whose blood will cover the sins of mankind so that death cannot come. Like, like he's right there and he knows this. He's standing with them, knowing, well, today's the Passover. That thing that my father and I did to foreshadow what I'm doing right now, they're about to try and celebrate. They've been looking forward to celebrating this. And they're killing me as this takes place. Again, he willingly, it just, it's his plan but I think the sorrowful, ironic nature of this was not lost upon Jesus Christ in this moment. The whole thing that was meant to represent his death on the cross, they're celebrating as they fulfill what needs to take place. So they're doing this. The shameful ignorance of the Jews is, is pushing through with this. They, they meet with Pilate. Uh, Pilate begins to meet with Jesus, uh, and after a little bit of conversation, he brings Jesus out and offers to uh, the Jewish leaders uh, in verse 40, um, all right, I have a custom on this day. Would you like Jesus or Barabbas? Would you, would you like this, this man who's been teaching that I find no fault in, or, or do you want this revolutionary terrorist that's causing problems with the Romans probably will continue and will eventually cause problems for you. 
And, and Jesus standing there, like, like again, I, I can't even imagine some of these things, but, but I do know this. I remember being in grade school, in elementary school, and you're picking teams for dodgeball, right? And it comes down to you and the other person are the last two people. And, and how terrible is it in that moment for them to be like, oh, we'll take Bobby. Oh, I guess I'm over here, right? Like, I know that. That's nowhere near what happened to Jesus, but standing there and to have his own people say, no, we'd rather have this revolutionary. We'd rather have this terrorist. And that's the decision that they make. So Pilate then takes Jesus uh, in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed them in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Now, there's a couple of things within this passage to, to look at and consider. The first one is where it says that he took him and, and had him flogged. Now, when we think of this, a lot of times our mind goes to Passion of the Christ, Right? Or, or we think about the type of whip that was used where it was kind of like that cat of nine tails where they would tie you know, bits of metal and bone or, or glass to try and inflict the most amount of damage. Uh, and there's this article I was looking at from D.A. Carson, uh, who's a theologian and historian, and, and he's looking at the different words for being flogged. And, and the different customs of this, and, and he makes a very, very strong argument where I'm convinced uh, there's three different types of whipping that were used by the Romans. Uh, the first one was more of a, a minor thing that was meant to um, harass, humiliate, teach a lesson. It's kind of what happened to John and Peter after they went to the Sanhedrin and they were told not to go on and to continue to preach, and they're like, well, we can't have it. Uh, help with doing it. And so they kind of like beat them as a punishment, like, like a caning in some modern-day countries to kind of let go, like, here's your punishment. Uh, the second one was, was more intense than that. And then the third one uh, is the one with that special whip that was very much passion of the Christ, uh, but was typically only used for crucifixion. Okay, so this first one, if you look at the timing of everything that's happening, the words that's used, most likely this flogging that Jesus was given here at this moment was the first one. Not the extreme one. But rather the, the lighter, obviously still painful, but a lighter beating meant to, to humiliate and to punish him for causing problems with the intention of letting him go. And as we look through the passage, we'll see this a little bit more. But, but in this moment, they're, they're sitting here and the soldiers are, are flogging him. Um, this lighter one, most likely, twisting a t together a crown of thorns. This crown of thorns were most likely from palm uh, at that time, where the spikes were up to 12 inches long. Uh, and so they'd be coming out 12 inches from around him, and they clothed him in purple, uh, which most likely wasn't an expensive robe, but maybe an old rug or, or something. He, he was being made a caricature at this point by the Romans in order to mock him as they continued to slap him in this. But again, all of this humiliation of Jesus in this moment was actually an attempt by Pilate to let him go. 
So what he says here in Luke chapter 23, verse 16, he says, I will have him whipped and then release him. Like this was Pilate's intention in this was let's humiliate Jesus. Let's humiliate him publicly. Let's, let's beat him to teach him a lesson, not to stir up problems. And let's let him go because I don't find any grounds for crucifixion. I don't find any grounds for killing him. And so after this happens, in in verse 4 now, it says, Pilate went outside and said to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, here is the man. Again, this whole aspect of the crown of thorns, the purple robe, the beating that he received was all meant to shame and humiliate him before others and to teach him a lesson. And so what Pilate's doing at this point is now bringing out a a Jesus who is in pain with this 12-inch crown of thorns on his head. He's been beaten. He's wearing a robe. He he is a caricature, a, a mockery of a king in the eyes of the Romans, and he presents them to the Jewish leaders. In a sense saying, I've done this, I think this is enough. Do you see what he's been reduced to? Do you see the mockery that he is? He's now publicly shamed in front of the hundreds of people that were there. Is this not enough to satisfy you and to show that he's really nothing? It's all Pilate's intent in this, and yet the crowd calls for his death. When he says, here is the man, the crowd begins to say, crucify him. Pilate says then, well, isn't he your king? You know what the response was there? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Now in this we have this whole political motivation that's happening from the Jewish leaders, right? Like, like they're saying, this man isn't our king. We don't want him. He's a mockery of a king. We reject him. Crucify him, right? But I think there's something deeper within this. That if we go back into the time of Judges in 1 Samuel, we see what's actually happening here. Go back to the time of the book of Judges. And, and God has been leading the nation of Israel through prophet and judges right? God is the king over Israel at that time. And he uses judges to help Israel out when they get into trouble. They use prophets in order to teach and kind of guide and direct. But the whole point is God is the king of Israel until what happens? Israel starts saying and looking around and saying, well, every other nation around us has a king, but we don't have a king. Let's get a king. And so they start asking for a king. And Samuel at that point is like upset with him. He's like, what are you doing? Do you really want a king? And God says, well, let him have one. And they get Saul, right? (laughs) Which causes all kinds of problems for them before he's finally replaced by David. But this whole aspect of in Judges, they're rejecting God as king. They want a man as king. And they've been wanting a man as king ever since that time. Even when they're sitting there under Roman rule, what do they want? They still want a king. They still want a king to be able to to come and overthrow Rome so that they can reestablish the kingdom of Israel as a powerhouse within the Middle East. That's their desire. 
And here, publicly, before their very God, they're declaring, we have no king but Caesar. They're literally tossing aside everything. that We don't want God as king. Guess what? Now we're okay with not having an Israelite as king. Caesar's our king. We're good with that. And doing it right in front of Jesus Christ. After this, Jesus is then forced to carry the cross on his own. Again, most likely now, after a second whipping. After the more extreme beating that we're familiar with when we think of Passion of the Christ. So it would be a second time. It was done intentionally before crucifixion in order to weaken the person so that they would die on the cross quicker. It was part of the process of this. And so most likely, um, as I've been looking at this, I'm convinced now that, that he was whipped once as a punishment, but then secondly and more brutally in preparation for the cross. Which is why then, as he's trying to carry the cross, he's unable to do it on his own, and they need to press Simeon or Simon into to helping out with this at that moment. All along in this, this foreshadowing that was done, if you remember Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham's going to go and, and sacrifice his son. And he has his son carry the wood for the sacrifice. And then God ends it at that point. And here now Jesus is carrying the wood of his own sacrifice. Knowing that there's not going to be a ram that's provided. Knowing that he is that perfect sacrifice. Knowing everything that's about to happen to him. And, and the crowd jeering him at this time as they follow him. Crucified in a public place uh, for everyone to see. It was done intentionally. It wasn't done privately in some little dungeon. It was done on a hill where many people passed in order to increase uh, the shame of this particular way of death. Soldiers then bet on his clothing. Like, like it's one of those things that we just kind of, like we pass by a lot of times in, in the story of like, okay, well, this fulfilled prophecy, right? They cast lots for my clothing. Um, but again, when you keep in mind who Jesus is, having gone through all of this, he's the perfect lamb, he's our friend, created all things, spoke all things into existence, he's the king of kings, the lord of lords, the conquering king, like, like all of these things, right? Like, like he holds all things together, the, the most beautiful and most precious Anything in all of existence has his hands stretched out and held by metal through wood as a group of paid soldiers sit in front of him gambling who gets what piece of clothing. Like, I can't imagine that. Being arrested and taken to jail and the police are like, okay, um, I'll take his socks. I'll get the pants. Let's gamble over a shirt. Like, like, that would be unheard of for our judicial system to do that, right? Like, how many lawsuits and riots would happen if, if police started, like, betting over and taking people's clothing after they were being punished? Why? Because it's dehumanizing, right? It's embarrassing and shameful. And yet, this is what happened to our, our God on the cross. I can't imagine how I would feel in that. And then all along in this, his mom was there. 
like right there, his mom. All of this happening, undeservedly. And, and she's just weeping and in agony over what's happening to her son. And, and I just can't imagine how that would feel. Like, I know that there's been times where I've, I've been in a situation and I've gotten hurt or something like that, and my mom was just distraught over where I was in that moment. She was worried for me, but I, I can't imagine a situation like this where I'm literally dying in front of her and people are betting on my clothing that she might have made for him, most likely made for him. I, I think the emotional trauma and, and shame of this adds an aspect of his suffering that, that we may not have considered much before. Because we look and focus on this physical, but there's so much stuff emotionally happening through this, this humiliation uh, and the shame that he went through that I think then brings another verse in Hebrews into sharp clarity. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. And struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted uh, to the point of shedding your own blood. This despising the shame. Now, when we just read this, I think there's one way to take it, right? Like, like he's sitting there on the cross, like all of these things happening to him, and he knows that he spoke all things into existence. He knows that all he literally needs to do is, is call for angels, and they'll rescue him. Like, if you've watched... Um, the Avengers, and, and you've got the big purple guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, and he like snaps his thumb. Thanos, there you go. He snaps his thumb, and, and people just kind of disintegrate within that. Like, Jesus does, he just, everybody's holding up by him, right? And, and so he's sitting here knowing all of this, and he knows that his sacrificial death is what's needed in order to restore mankind's relationship with him, in order to bring about justice for sin that was committed and has been committed, that, that, that there is only freedom for humanity through his death on the cross. And so that's the joy set before him. That's an easy thing to consider, like the joy of reconciliation and saving mankind. He, he willingly despised the shame of the cross to go through this. And when I read this passage and I look at that word, in my mind, if I put myself into Jesus' position, it's like, this is stupid. I despise this shame. Like, what they're doing to me, like, this is really stupid. Like, like, that's how I picture it. However, the Greek word here, despise, um, is Strong's number 2706, kataphroneo, uh, which means to despise, disdain, um, but I think rather here is to think little or nothing of. To think little or nothing of. In other words, as Jesus is on the cross, 
And they're doing everything that they can to bring him shame, slapping him in the face, making a mockery, dressing him up like a broken king. The, the cross itself happening in front of his mom, like, like all of these things that humanity intentionally attempted to put shame and emotional pain upon Jesus as part of his execution. It literally says that because of the joy set before him, he thought nothing of it. He thought nothing of it. They slapped me in the face. That gives me no shame. I'm innocent. They're in the wrong. And they're blind. So why should I have shame over this? They're mocking me up as a king. Why should I have shame over this? I am the king. They're blind. They don't understand. They're reacting out of that blindness and deception. It doesn't change who Jesus is. It doesn't change how he knows that he's the king of the universe. And he's sitting there saying, well, they're trying to make me look like an earthly king. They don't know. Why should I have shame over this? They're putting me on the cross, exposing me in front of everybody, and they don't realize that they're fulfilling prophecy and that this is my plan. Why should I have shame over them doing what I wanted them to do in the first place? And so because of the joy of, of the cross, he has no shame in this. He despises the shame. He thinks nothing of the shame because he knows what it is accomplishing. He knows what it's bringing about in this reconciliation of man and God, the forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. That could only be accomplished by that perfect death. Jesus had no shame in this whatsoever. But this concept of shame, I think, is also connected to something else. In another passage, in 2 Corinthians, and then we'll tie these two together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, it's talking about he made the one who did not know sin, or rather Jesus, who did not know any sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, it's referring to Jesus Christ on the cross. The whole point of him going through this was to stand in our place so that the wrath of God against sin was on Jesus so that those of us who have repented of our sins, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, we've received that grace and mercy. Jesus took the punishment for us at the cross so that we might be forgiven, redeemed, and, and adopted into the family of God. That is what it's saying here. Is he made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to, to be sin or to bear sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're going to take the righteousness of God. We're going to get to that in a second. But th this whole thing ties together, I think, in Adam and Eve. Again, we go back to Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden, right? The original sin that, that rebelled against God, wanting control, wanting wisdom for ourselves, said we don't need him telling us what's right or wrong, we want to decide ourselves. So they partake of the fruit, they, they commit that sin, their eyes are open to right and wrong, right? What's one of the first things that they recognize? They're naked, right? So then what do they do? They cover up. Because they're 
shame. Right? Like, like sin comes into the world and the emotion that humanity feels over sin is shame. And then we try and cover up. So there's deception, sin, shame. And, and this is the cycle that within our own strength that we go through over and over and over again. We, we, we're deceived, we commit sin, we feel shame, then our pride tries to reduce that shame or bury the shame or reclaim the shame or whatever it is. We try and fix it so that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're actually doing okay, which leads to deception, which leads to sin, which leads to shame. And it's this cycle that happens over and over and over again. And what here is the whole thing that was designed by God as it was prophesied hundreds Hundreds of years before the cross, that he would face shame and to consider it nothing because he knew he was righteous, he knew he was holy, he knew that he was without sin. Shame had no hold on him, right? So Adam and Eve sin, they're feeling shame. I truly believe it was God's design for Jesus to die in one of the most shameful ways that humanity has ever devised. For it to have no hold on him, no effect on him, so that as he bore the weight of sin and died, shame is broken because there was no hold. And he's accomplishing this very thing that breaks sin and death for those of us that return to him. It says that he became sin for us so that we might become the what of God? The righteousness of God. The holiness of God. In right standing with God. In other words, we should count shame as nothing. Right? Because if shame is the human reaction to failure, a human reaction to sin, a human reaction to missing the mark, if what God says about us is because of what my son did in your place for you, you now have his righteousness. You now have his holiness. It's literally what this verse says. We become the very righteousness, the very holiness of God. So in other words, the standing that Jesus had when he was on the cross trying to be shamed, and he's like, I can't count this as anything because I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm sinless, I'm innocent. He it had no hold on him. Through his death on the cross, we are then brought to be the righteousness of God so that sin has no hold on us, that chains are broken. Shame has no hold on us. Those chains are broken. That is the reality of our existence if we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that is the truth. Now, we don't often live that way because we begin to accept deceptions and lies again where our enemy tries to put that shame back on us and what happens in that moment is we make a choice or we have a choice to make. Either I'm the righteousness of God because of what Christ did, not because of what I did. He endured such shame and pain and the penalty of sin for me so that I am made righteous. I, I'm not claiming that for myself. He says that about me. 
So therefore, when Satan or others are trying to bring shame, to trying to bring condemnation upon me for things that I've done in my past, I can sit there and say, Jesus carried this. I'm done with it. I have no shame over this. I am forgiven. He sees me as his son or his daughter. I account this shame as nothing because of Jesus. Or we can listen to those little whispers and those little lies and then say, well, maybe he's right. But who do we truly believe? Like if we step back and take a choice, Jesus. So we can't sit there and, and, and listen to those little lies that try to accuse us, to pull us out of what Jesus accomplished at the cross, which is far greater than we tend to acknowledge. We'll go to first or Second Corinthians chapter five. We we led the last verse in this passage again, where it said, "He he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God." I, I want to go back to verse sixteen and read all of this in context because then it changes the way that we see ourselves and others. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who is reconciled to us, to himself, through Jesus Christ, and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ. In Christ, God reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We no longer see or know anyone from a worldly perspective. This ties into Romans chapter 12, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but renew your mind, testing and knowing what is the perfect will of God. This whole thing is, is all about us coming to a point in our lives of, of recognizing we have no hope within our own strength. We have no hope to, to pay back our sins. We have no ability to be good enough to be holy, to access God. We just can't do it. So we come to a point of, of acknowledging that and confessing our sins, or repenting of our sins, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, submitting to Him and saying, I need you to rescue me because I can't do this in my own strength. And when we come to that place in our life, all of the power that was worked at the cross and in Christ's resurrection is then at work in our lives, according to Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 1. All of that power is at work within our lives. Everything that Jesus accomplished, and I believe the very intentional design of the shame that humanity tried to put on him, that he's like, it means nothing to me to the physical pain, to him bearing the sin in our place, all of that comes to bear where Jesus Christ received that for us at the cross. And as we confess him as Lord, we are then given a freedom that we cannot fully comprehend yet. 
We get glimpses of it. And we walk towards it. But the whole point of it is there is now no condemnation. There is now no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we've been set free in what He did for us. We've become the righteousness of God by His work on the cross. Paul's response to this is that we no longer look at anybody in a worldly perspective. And we can no longer look at ourselves in a worldly perspective. We can no longer judge ourselves according to the standards of the world or the standards within our own minds. But, but only by what God says. If we repent, we are forgiven. There's no condemnation. If we're in Christ Jesus, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, and there is growth. Because of the cycle we tend to get into, we, we struggle with deception, then we just struggle with sin, we struggle with shame, and we can continue to go through that if we get into a, a pattern of condemnation and acceptance of an identity that is untrue. Or, we can meditate upon His Word. We can focus on His promises and what He has told us is true. And when the whispers of temptation, the whispers of shame and condemnation come into our minds, we can choose to be like Jesus in that moment and say, I have nothing to do with this because I'm righteous. Not because I did it. That's the hardest thing. Like, like, say right now, I am the righteousness of God. Let's do it again. I am the righteousness of God. How do you feel saying that? Are you like, woo? Or are you kind of like, this feels uncomfortable. Right? And I think there's moments in our life where it can be any one of those things, right? Like, like there's things when God does something really cool. I'm like, yes, I'm the righteousness of God. And, and there's other times when we're looking at ourselves and we're judging ourselves or we're listening to the whispers of the enemy. And when we look at this and he says, you are the righteousness of God. And we try to say it. I am the righteousness of God. That as soon as we say it in our hearts and in our minds are these little whispers of you're not good enough. It's not true. That's not God saying that. Because he says he made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he did what we could not do, that we're not good enough to do. He did for us in our place and it is done. In fact, he was on the cross and he said, it is finished. This is the truth. And this is the lifelong pursuit of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Is to remind ourselves of the truth. To walk in the truth. To encourage each other to walk in that truth. And the more that we can do that, standing in the identity that was bought for us at the cross of Calvary the easier and easier it will be when shame, condemnation, or temptation comes that we can despise it. Not in the sense of, oh, that's stupid, but in the sense that Jesus did where he says, this means nothing to me. This temptation, 
I have nothing to do with it because I'm the righteousness of God. The shame has no foothold because I'm the righteousness of God. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you that it is finished by Jesus on the cross and not our human attempts to make it so. Father, we thank you that in your love and grace and mercy, not only did you forgive our sins, but you made us to be the righteousness of God. Not because of anything we did, but what you did for us because of love, because of grace, because of mercy. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us such an understanding of this, this truth of how you see us, how you love us, that the whole, the whole plan of the cross was to flaunt righteousness and holiness in the face of shame so that shame was powerless so that we might learn the lesson that because you've made us holy and righteous, that we have that same standing because we have the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, let us no longer consider ourselves from a worldly perspective, but by your Spirit, help us to grow, to be disciples of, and to encourage one another to live in the righteousness of God where the problems of this world, the shame of this world, the condemnation, and even the temptations have no hold on us because we are in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the peace that this brings. And while we make um, efforts to walk this out, your grace carries us through it all. Despite our imperfections, this is the truth. It is a truth that we do not dismantle or dissolve by our mistakes, but one that is established by the blood of Christ for all of eternity for those who are in Him. We thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.